Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Mark. Our sermon text is uh, just Mark 16, verses 5 through 8, but uh, to give a little bit of the context, we're actually going to back up uh, to Mark 15, verse 33, for the scripture reading. So Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Uh, Before we read together, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we thank you for Jesus, who is our hope and trust. We thank you for the work of Jesus in bearing our sin in the cross and in defeating death by his resurrection from the dead, that we might have the hope of reconciliation to you and of newness of life. Our Father, we pray that now as we read uh, Mark uh, 15 and 16, as we think about uh, the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us, we pray that you would humble us before your word and before the awesome work of our Savior, uh, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to receive, uh, to receive that work, to receive the truth of what we hear in the scriptures, enable us uh, to put our faith in the Savior, to put all of our trust in him. Father, we pray that by that you would transform our lives, that they would be more and more to your glory and honor. Be with us now. Give me the words to say. Give us all the hearts and minds to hear and receive uh, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, I remember when uh, our firstborn son, Thomas, was born. Uh, He was born at about 8.05 in the morning. And uh, it was probably, probably about 12 hours later, 8 in the evening, I was sitting next to uh, Deborah's hospital bed, and I was holding Thomas, and uh, I was thinking about the fact that he was 12 hours old, and I was 26 years old, and I sat there holding him in my arms, and I started to think about the difference between those two ages. And, and I did, started doing the math in my head, which took a long time because I'm really bad at math. And, uh, and, and I'm calculating, and I, and I realized that I was about 18,980 times his age, which kind of blew me away in that moment. And, you know, it's one of those moments when you have your first child, period, I guess is one of those moments uh, that you're just awed by reality. You're just blown away. And uh, there are times like this, right, where you kind of step back from life a little bit, remarkable moments that just stick with you. And yet, that's not most of life. Most of life is mundane. Uh, you know, mundane, it's, it's the everyday, it's the ordinary, it's the routine, the unremarkable, the common. Your life is mundane. That's not an insult, right? That's just an observation. (laughs) Uh, Things pretty much go on as usual, day after day. We we wake, we eat, we work, we eat, we sleep, we wake, we eat, and on and on it goes. We have our agendas, we have our goals. Uh, We want to make enough to buy a nice big home or save money for college. We work to get the girl or the grades or the job or the promotion. We live for the weekend, or the summer, or vacation, or retirement. We know we have about 100 years, give or take. All we can do is make the most of it while we're here. Life is pretty much mundane. But there are times in life when the routine is broken, and when the mundane becomes the extraordinary. And maybe, if only for a moment, we, we think about life a little bit differently the birth of a child, or the death of a parent, a wedding, a sunset, a painting, a piece of music, right? Even a particular story or movie that catches us by surprise. But these moments come and go. 
normally they don't last, right? Most of life, most of life is lived in the mundane. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, were, were very much living life in the mundane. They were headed to a tomb, a grave. They were going to find a body, a dead body. And there's nothing more mundane than caring for a stinking, rotting corpse. Many people have pointed out that the climate of Israel meant uh, that decay happened rapidly. And so these women loved Jesus enough to anoint his dead body properly, despite the stench. Maybe their love was not so mundane, but caring for the dead body was. These women had not come to the tomb to see the resurrection. They didn't come to see an angel clothed in white. They didn't come for any surprises. In fact, the only thing on their mind as they uh, walk in the early hours of the morning is how they're going to roll this stone away from the mouth of the tomb so that they can anoint the dead body of Jesus. You see, their concerns are very practical, mundane. There's really just one point in the sermon this morning, and that one point is that in the resurrection of Jesus, the extraordinary has broken into the mundane, which means that life can never be the same again. But as we go, as we look at that point, we're going to ask four questions that lead us there. You can see those four questions on the back of your bulletin, uh, on the outline for the sermon. Uh, Those questions are, number one, who do you expect Jesus to be? Number two, do you know that, uh, that things are not as they appear? Number three, do you understand that the resurrection of Jesus means that life can never be the same again? And number four, what does all this mean? So number one, uh, who do you expect Jesus to be? Something interrupted their routine. Something was not as they expected it to be. And they were alarmed. Look at verses 4 and 5. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. See, the things were not as the women expected. First, the stone was rolled away. You know, these three women had been discussing amongst themselves how they were going to remove this stone. They knew that they couldn't do it, right? It was too big, even for the three of them together, to move this stone. But here it was, moved, out of their way. It had been rolled back. What could they possibly think? Grave robbers? Someone had stolen the body? The Jews? The Romans? Who could could have done it? Who would have... Who would have done it? Where was the body of their Lord? But then they go in. And things only get weirder. There's a man sitting on the right side, clothed in a white robe. Who is this? What's going on? You know, they they may have known that this was an angel of some kind. This is often the way angels are described in the scriptures. Never are messenger angels described the way we think of as people with wings. Never described like that in Scripture. 
They're simply young men in white robes, and these women are alarmed. You see, they don't understand. They don't expect anything out of the ordinary, right? They expect the routine. They expect the mundane. They expect the normal to just keep on being the normal. They don't think that Jesus came to radically change their lives. I mean, they thought he might, but he didn't. And now he's dead. And they love him, but he's dead. And now they're alarmed. They're worried. They're worried about the body of Jesus, right? They are worried about him, which just goes to show how much they don't get it, at least not yet. Jesus cannot be domesticated, of course, right? They are expecting a stinky dead body. They are expecting the mundane, the run of the mill, but they find an empty tomb. <coughs> Who do you expect Jesus to be? What do you expect to find when you come to him? Who do you think he is? A first century teacher, an executed revolutionary, a great visionary leader and peacemaker who died before his time? Who do you think he is? What do you expect? Allow yourself to come and be alarmed with these women. Experience the, their wonder and their confusion. What's going on here? Who has rolled away the stone? Where is the body? Where is their Lord? You know, if you're not thrown off by Jesus, at least sometimes, then you probably haven't really encountered him. Jesus can't be put in a box or he doesn't stay on the shelf, right? He's not going to wholesale back your political agenda or your party lines. If he doesn't surprise you at times, if he doesn't disagree with you at times, Either you're claiming that uh, Jesus is just like you, or you are just like Jesus, and either way, I'm a little bit skeptical. Who do you expect Jesus to be? Let him challenge those expectations. Second question, do you know that things are not as they appear? This young man speaks up in verse 6. He says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Right? The grave is open. The corpse is gone. Yet another insult has been added to all the rest. Someone has stolen the body of Jesus. Do not be alarmed. Why not? You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified? Yes, that's right. They seek Jesus, right? Where is he? They're thinking. The one who was crucified, the crucified one, he's gone. Where have they taken him? No, you don't understand, right? You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. It's not what you think, right? He is risen. He is not here. Things are not as they appear to be. He has risen. He is not here. See, the empty tomb, rather than a cause for alarm, is evidence that he has been raised. Now, it's true. Simply looking at the tomb won't convince anyone. And who Jesus is cannot be known merely by looking in a history book. The women come to the tomb, and the simple facts only further disturb and confuse them. 
They need God to tell them what all this means. And so he does. He sends his messenger to explain what's going on. And you will never understand who Jesus is until you let God tell you who he is. These women are worried, right? They're worried that Jesus' body has been desecrated. The simple facts only further their alarm. His body is gone. But he had been raised, and they don't get it. See, Jesus is not to be pitied. He's to be worshipped. Do not be alarmed. Things are not what you think. He has been raised. He is not here. And do you know that things are not always as they appear? Do you realize there is more to life than, than what we can see with our eyes? Do you know that, that God has acted in history? And do you know that the only way to fully understand what God has done is to listen to him? Things are not always as they appear. But God has spoken to explain himself to be sure that we understand what he has done for us in Christ. And of course, he's recorded that message for us, the divine interpretation of Jesus' work in the New Testament scriptures. Do you know that things are not always as they appear? Jesus is not who he first appears to be. He's not a crucified revolutionary. He's not a good moral teacher who died before his time. Listen to what God is telling us. He has risen, which means he is so much more. Do you know that things are not always as they appear? And do you know that the resurrection of Jesus means that things can never be the same again? But go, verse 7 begins. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. See, rather than calming down, the emotional state of these women only heightens. The angel says, do not be alarmed. And they go from alarm to straight up fear. And they run from the tombs, fleeing, Mark tells us. They're trying to escape something. Like they're running away. They're trembling, and astonishment has seized them. They quake with amazement. They're bewildered. They're awestruck. And they're not only awestruck, but they're dumbstruck as well, right? They, they said nothing to anyone. The women are afraid, they're terrified. What are they afraid of? The women are afraid because they are beginning to realize who Jesus is. Time and again in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does great things. And people respond in great fear. At first, people are amazed at Jesus. He, he heals the lame and the deaf and the leper. And people are amazed. That amazement slowly gives way to fear as Jesus reveals more and more of who he is. The disciples are filled with great fear and ask, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In Mark 4. People are afraid when they see the formerly demon-possessed man sitting clothed in his right mind in Mark 5. A woman healed by Jesus falls at his feet in fear and trembling. Jesus walks on the water and the disciples fear. 
Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and the disciples are terrified. But this, right, this is greater than all else. He has risen. He has conquered death. God has entered into history, defeated death on behalf of men. What, what emotion can you show? The world will never be the same again. Right? Death has been undone. And there are indicators in the text right, that things are indeed different. I mean, first, Jesus, Jesus has been risen from the dead, which means that his body was remade. It was put back together, recreated, given new life. And the recreation of the body of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation when God will remake his broken world. Chapter 16, verse 1 says that the Sabbath was passed and a new day, a new week had come. Hinting at, at least hinting at something radically new has come in the resurrection of Jesus. See, just as the first creation began on Sunday, so the new creation begins on the first day of the week. And when did it begin? As the sun was rising on a new day, right? the new creation has come. A new day has dawned for humanity in the resurrection of Jesus. The presence of the angel sitting in glorious white robes signals the glories of this new age. The angel signals out, singles out Peter in verse 7. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, which tells us that, that forgiveness is a part of this new resurrection order. Forgiveness and reconciliation, which were made possible by the death of Jesus, now characterize the new resurrection day, the new creation that has begun. And the women are told to go and tell. Proclaiming the risen Jesus is a part of this new age. And the irony of this text uh, isn't to be missed because Jesus had told people time and again throughout his ministry not to tell anyone who he was until after the resurrection. But they never listened. Right? They, they would always immediately go and tell people who he was. Now he has been raised. The women are commanded to go and tell but they are so overwhelmed, they run off in silence. They say nothing to anyone. These women come to anoint Jesus' body for burial, but they leave fearful, excited, confused, bewildered. They come mourning and they leave worshiping. A new order has come. A change has taken place. Their mourning has been turned into worship. True fear of the Lord. And one thing that surely characterizes the, the wonder and the, the worship and the bewilder, bewilderment of these women is a question. What does all this mean? And one implication, one answer to that question uh, in particular surely was running through their minds. See, because as, as devout Jews, these women understood that Jesus' resurrection is not some isolated event. But it's the beginning of the resurrection. You see, the Jewish people believed that on the last day, God would raise all people from the dead. And the resurrection would be when all people would rise and would face judgment. They believed in a resurrection, a resurrection to come in the future when everyone would rise from the dead. But here's Jesus, risen from the dead. And so these women know if Jesus has risen, then the end has come. And nothing can ever be the same again. 
If Jesus is risen, that means our resurrection is soon to follow. The women would have made this connection, and, and we ought to make this connection as well. Paul does. In 1 Corinthians, he makes it explicit. Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, how often do we look at the resurrection of Jesus and think, I'm going to rise from the dead? When Jesus returns, just as he got out of the grave, so I will get out of the grave one day. You know, so often we think that uh, Christianity teaches that if I'm a good little boy, I will go to heaven when I die. Which, of course, that's wrong on two accounts. One, heaven is not for good little boys. It's for sinful people who cast themselves on the mercy of the Savior who died for them. And two, heaven is actually not the Christian hope. Heaven is not the Christian hope. Our hope is not to be disembodied souls who go to heaven while our bodies decay in the grave somewhere. I mean, that will happen, but that's not the end of the story. The Christian hope is that at the return of Jesus, we will rise from the dead, just as Jesus rose from the dead. That God will bring our bodies out of the grave, grave and recreate them as he did with the body of Jesus. And then, then we will live forever in the new creation, in the very presence of God himself in our renewed bodies. That is our hope, dwelling with our Father in our bodies forever in the new creation. And if you think about it, right, just this one implication of the resurrection of Jesus, that we too will rise from the dead, has a myriad of implications for our life. Do you see that just this one implication of Jesus means that your life can never be the same again? I mean, how, how could that, right, just that one thought, just that one implication that we will one day rise from the dead, how could that alter your life permanently? Let me suggest a dozen ways. Don't worry, I'll go fast. A dozen ways. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty more, but 12 that I could think of, right? A dozen ways that life can never be the same again. Given that Christ has been raised from the dead and that his people will be raised with him at his return. Twelve things that can never be seen in the same light again. First, the way we think about the good life can never be the same again. Right? You, you no longer have to live for the good life here and now. We have a hope right, that, that there is a good life to come at the resurrection. Our hope is not that we can get as much as we can right here and right now. Our hope is that we will dwell with our Father forever, then and there. You know, if you set your sights on finding joy in the moment, in the things of this life, you will constantly end up disappointed. Your marriage, your children, your work, your play, if you live for these things, they will inevitably fall short of your expectations and desires. They will lead you to disappointment and discouragement. But if you live for the joy of the resurrection, 
then you are freed up to enjoy all the things of this life for what they are. Because you know that your true and ultimate joy is yet to come. Second, the way we think about health can never be the same again. You know, how many of us spend our lives worried about our health? We spend hours and hours and millions and millions as Americans trying to get healthy and stay healthy. And yet we all die. And that's true. We should take care of our bodies as we are able. But how much of a relief is it to know that one day we will rise from the dead? Our bodies will be put back together by God himself, and we will have a health that we cannot presently imagine. And we will have that for eternity. Three, mourning over the death of a loved one can never be the same again. You know, a loved one, a loved one who dies in Christ, though your loss is real and sad and, and to be mourned, that person who dies in Christ will rise again. So death does not have the final word. We can mourn as those who have hope in the resurrection. Fourth, our struggle with sin, our battle with addictions and destructive habits and personal flaws can never be the same again. See, we have hope in the midst of the struggle that this struggle will come to an end. And it's not merely going to end in death. Sin does not win. This struggle will end in the resurrection. When we will rise as people who have been made perfect body and soul by Christ. Fifth, your work can never be the same again. You know, how often do we ask ourselves if our work means anything? Or if it's all in vain? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Your work for the Lord is not in vain in light of the certainty of the resurrection. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection, and it ends with this verse about your work. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain in the Lord. Ephesians 6 says we are to do all of our work as to the Lord because it is He who will reward us. When will He do that? At the resurrection. See, we work for the Lord and He will reward you at the proper time, Scripture says. Now, I should say, of course, the reward is not because we've earned it. It's not because we've merited it. But God is pleased to reward His children for their work on account of his grace to us in his son Jesus. And so we work day after day in the midst of the mundane in light of resurrection glory to come, which God has promised to his children. Six, the way we think about leaving a legacy can never be the same again. You know, so many people want to leave a legacy because by it they, they attain a kind of immortality, right? They want their name to live on after they die. But, given the resurrection, of course, you don't need to, to live for a legacy that will live on after you die because uh, you will live on after you die. We no longer have to live to make a name for ourselves because we will live on, dwelling with our Father in heaven. Seven, which means whose smile we live for can never be the same again. Whose smile we live for. You know, how many of us are living to please men in this life, 
right? We're petrified of what people think of us. We want people to like us. We want the praise and the rewards of men. But as Matthew 6 tells us, our reward is from God. And if we know that there's a resurrection coming, should we not rather seek to please him and not men? Whatever man can give, right, they they can't give you the resurrection. That's found only in Jesus. Live to please your father, to know his joy, to see his smile. And that will be your reward on that day when the father says to his children, well done, good and faithful servant. Eight, the way we think about justice can never be the same again. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that God will set all things right in the end. Justice will be done. See, though on the cross an innocent man was unjustly put to death, Jesus having fully paid for our sins, death could not hold him and God raised him from the dead. All things will be set right on the last day. That is our hope. And of course, nine, justice leads us naturally to thinking of oppression in particular. Oppression will not last forever. Christ will return. Our resurrection will happen. And then there will be no more oppression, no more sadness, no more tears. All our enemies will either be transformed or condemned. Ten, all of these things mean that there is a hope for the future, which in turn means I can live without fear today. I can live without fear today, right? There's much more to say about how God cares for and provides for us today, right now. But the resurrection of Jesus validates the, the promise of God that a resurrection is coming. And that means we have a hope for the future. And that means we can live without fear in the present. Whatever life throws our way, we can live fearlessly knowing that whatever loss we experience, whatever sickness comes our way, that that even when death itself engulfs us, a resurrection is coming. The mundane of life is suddenly qualified by this very not mundane hope of the resurrection. Eleven, if we have this hope and if this frees us from fear, that means we are free to live sacrificially. We can give our lives to seeking justice or fighting oppression or caring for the poor and the needy or speaking the good news of Jesus. We can give our lives to the work of God without, fearing of, without fear of losing our life. Jesus said whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. And just as Jesus lost his life at the cross and found it in the resurrection from the dead three days later, So we can give ourselves to living radically for Jesus because we know that that our present life, right, the next 60, 70, 80, 90 years is nothing compared to the resurrection life to come. No matter what we lose, no matter what we give up in this life, we, we will gain it back a hundredfold when we rise from the dead and dwell forever in God's new creation. We can live radically now for the life to come then without the fear of losing one penny's worth of joy in the life that God has for you, because we know that the fullness of that life is yet to come. Twelve, and finally, all of this means that the focus of your life, your goal, can never be the same again. If all of this is true, we must devote our lives to the resurrected Christ. We must give ourselves to worshiping Him, living for Him. We must give our lives to telling others about Him so that they too might come to know the hope of the resurrection. 
See, all of our service, all of our words, all of our actions, our pursuit of justice, our proclamation of Jesus, right, is all done for the glory of the resurrected Christ. Do you know that the resurrection means that life can never be the same again? Jesus has been raised, forgiveness has been accomplished, a new creation has begun, the first fruits have been taken out of the ground, the rest is sure to follow. The mundane has been broken into, right? Resurrection life has begun. Nothing should ever be the same again. Put your trust in Jesus, the one who died for us and was raised, and begin to see life through new eyes. See the the mundane through the lens of the extraordinary. See the darkness of difficulty and death through the lens of the first light of resurrection morning. And know that life can never be the same. Let's pray. Our Father, you have done great things. You have done great things, our Father, by raising your Son Jesus from the dead. You have done great things by giving him victory over the grave. Father, we marvel that not only have you raised your Son from the dead, but that you promise that if we trust in him, we too will rise from the dead one day. Father, work that hope, that hope in the resurrection of Jesus, that hope in our resurrection to come, work that deep into our hearts so that our lives would never be the same again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.